I received an email this week from Sean. Very short, which is the kind I like. It said this. Charles, when you get a chance, this unit is in need of a restart. Now, Sean works for IT, and usually I ignore those emails, or in my mind I say, I never have a chance. But I've discovered from experience that if I don't open everything or close everything and save everything, eventually the unit will restart itself and I'll lose a bunch of stuff. So early Tuesday morning, even though I was very busy, I closed everything and saved everything and restarted my computer. Thank you, Sean. Well, now that I got that off my chest, we can look at Genesis 1 to 11. Well, this morning, we're going to conclude that series. And a lot of you like to kind of, or you've asked for a summary, a recap. So this morning, we're going to recap reset. That's our goal. And you've probably heard me say numerous times these past few weeks that Genesis 1 through 11 are absolutely essential in understanding the rest of the Bible and in understanding life. In fact, the big questions of life are kind of answered for us in Genesis 1 through 11. How did everything get here? How did I get here? Where am I going? Why am I here? What's the problem? What's the solution? What time is it? Those are all questions that are answered in Genesis 1 to 11. Now, in our recap, we're going to kind of summarize, fly over those 11 chapters, because those 11 chapters were purposefully put there in a tightly knitted way to reiterate and remind us of some themes over and over again so we don't forget them. So as long as we're thinking about big picture, here's our story. Uh, we've developed a story a number of years ago, the Bible in six acts. And so that goes, God creates, God is rejected, God makes promises, God appears, God sends God restores. The first three chapters or the first three acts of our story all begin in Genesis 1 through 11. So if you're going to understand the rest of the story of the Bible, you've got to understand something about those first few chapters. Um, I got another email this week saying, hey, Charles, will you join me for breakfast? And this person named the place. And I kind of knew the place, but wasn't quite sure where it was. So I went to the web. I have to go there on July 6th, by the way. I went to the website and they showed me this map where it was. Here's the problem. The map was so detailed, I had no idea where it was. So I had to keep hitting the zoom out button like 15 times until eventually I recognized other things. And then I could figure how to get there. You know, what's true with a map is sometimes true of the Bible. Sometimes we need to zoom in to get the details of the particular, but sometimes we need to zoom out to get the layout of the entire landscape, not just of the whole Bible, but of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So we're going to kind of follow that outline from the story a little bit as we look at the first 11 chapters in review this morning. Well, first of all, God creates. That's how the story begins. And the Bible begins with the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how we started. And uh, you need to be reminded, and hopefully you're not tired of hearing me say this, God did not begin at the beginning. God doesn't have a beginning. And so for eternity past before the beginning, God was there. And God existed as a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, which means God was in community for all eternity and always will be. 
we talk a lot on staff about. We were created in the image of community. Therefore, if we're not in community, we're out of sync with our design and the intention for which God made us. Well, that, that God spoke everything that exists into being. And in the first few chapters, we hear these words over and over again. God said it was so. God saw it was good. Remember we practiced that? Uh, you want to do it again? How about if we do it? Ready? Go with me. God said it was so. God saw it was good. Now notice, God says, and it comes into being, God sees what he made, and he calls it good. And you know what that means about creation? God is a powerful, creative, loving God. He could have made our lives miserable. He could have done everything in grays or browns. I hate earth tones. He could have done everything in earth tones. But rather than doing that, he creates us with five senses, and he creates everything in the world to fire those senses. And God wants us to enjoy creation, and we need to be reminded that we have a purpose in creation. You know, we live in a world where the voices of culture say things at times that don't make sense. So, for example, we live in a world that likes to say to us, we, there is no creator. We're here just because of time and we're an accident. But that's bad and that's good. Can I let you know a little secret? If there's no designer, if there's no purpose, there can be no good or evil, right or wrong. You've got to have a, you've got to have a designer and a purpose in order for something to be good or bad. For example, here's a table. Is this a good table? Well, it depends what, it, what it's for, right? It's a terrible table to pick junk out of my teeth. I've tried, it doesn't work well. It's a terrible table to tell time, but it's a good table to hold my Bible and some notes. You see, in order to say something's good or bad, right or wrong, there has to be a purpose. And so our culture likes to talk about things being right and wrong. Well, if things are right and wrong, there's got to be a purpose. They want to live with no purpose but right and wrong. You can't put those two things together. But we've got a designer and a creator who designed things, tells us what the purpose is, and from his creative hand, he calls things good. And the day he made human beings, he said it was very good. Well, that's important to know. And we learned that from Genesis 1 to 11. But we're only two chapters in, and then we come to Genesis chapter 3, and we see that God is rejected. God is rejected. And we define sin, if you remember, if you were here those weeks, about the turning of, the, of that triangle by 120 degrees. So, okay, here, here's how we define sin. If you think of the triangle, here's how God designed things. God is at the top, which means he is the one that determines right and wrong, good and evil. He's the designer, therefore he's the author. The author has authority to define the terms. He then creates Adam and Eve. And the serpent, the evil one, is a creation, right? And they're kind of at the bottom. God determines good and evil, right and wrong. Rebellion, sin, is turning that triangle 120 degrees. It's dethroning God. And that's what we see in that Adam and Eve account. We see Adam and Eve now in the decider seat. It's not that they're denying that God exists. They believe in God. 
but they've dethroned him and they now decide. They invite God to share his opinion. They invite God to give his perspective, but they will decide what they will do. They will decide what's good and evil, right and wrong. That 120 degree turn is rebellion. That's what sin is. Now, it's kind of interesting as you look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you get creation in one and two. And then after that, in chapters three through 11, you have four accounts that repeat the same themes. So here are the four accounts. We've looked at them. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and the flood, Tower of Babel. Those four accounts repeat the same themes over and over again. And the theme goes like this. Rebellion. But after rebellion comes a pronouncement. God announces the consequences of the rebellion. But in every one of the four accounts, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and the flood, and in the Tower of Babel, there is an expression of grace in every one. So even in the midst of the rebellion, in the midst of turning the triangle, God gives an expression of grace. And, and we're going to look at those four expressions of grace in the illustrations. And then the consequences come in all four accounts. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and the flood, and Tower of Babel, those four themes. Sin, there's a rebellion. God pronounces or announces judgment's coming. But before the judgment is enacted, an expression of grace is given. And then after the grace is extended, then the consequences flow. Well, Adam and Eve rebel, obviously. God says, don't eat the fruit, and they eat the fruit. That's kind of rebellion. They've taken the triangle, right? And they've turned the triangle. But God comes with an expression, actually expressions of grace, doesn't he? He gives them better clothing than the fig leaves. And we even talked on that day about how we continue to construct fig leaves, right? We construct things ourselves to try to hide our sin and shame from other people. And often our motive in relationship is we're going to expose other people's shame as we hide our own. And we do that sometimes by storing up resources, by accumulating stuff. We do that with our resume. We do that by pointing out people's faults. And all of that is expressions of the rebellion as we're trying to hide ourselves and expose other people so we can feel better. But God comes and gives more permanent clothing. So God gets animal skins, which means animals had to die. Innocent animals had to die to provide the covering for Adam and Eve's shame. But not just that. God gives a promise to Adam and Eve. And he says, there's going to be enmity between you and the serpent. And that enmity is going to continue to be ratcheted up until the serpent will strike your heel but Eve's seed will crush his head. The seed will suffer and be wounded, but in that suffering, the ultimate victory will be won and the enemy will be defeated. So there's clothing and there's a promise. And there we see the expressions of grace before Adam and Eve are thrown out of the garden as the consequences. You see the themes? Sin? Consequences are announced. There's then expressions of grace, and then the consequences are enacted.
How about we turn the page to Cain and Abel? We see the same four things. Now, God says to uh, Cain and Abel, uh, your brothers, right, just as you are to protect and build and care for the garden, obviously you need to be protecting and caring for one another. Cain murders his brother Abel. That's certainly rebellion, right? Cain looks around. He wanted God's favor. Abel's getting his favor. He's not. He can't take God out, so he takes his brother out. And in that incident, we've talked about the insidious nature of sin, right? We said that sin is dangerous. In fact, the metaphor of a cat is used, right? Sin is crouching at the door, waiting to pounce on you, making itself small, seemingly insignificant, waiting for the opportune moment when you least suspect it, sin will pounce. Well, what are the expressions of grace? Isn't it amazing? God doesn't come, and as soon as Cain kills Abel, God doesn't kill Cain. God comes in expressions of grace. He comes as Cain's counselor. He comes and says, uh, Cain, why are you so angry? Why are you downcast? Why are you so discouraged? If you do what is right, won't you experience my blessing too? And even after the act where Cain kills Abel, God shows up and he asks a question. Where's Abel? He comes as revealer. He comes as counselor. And he wants Cain to own his sin. God's working to reveal. Cain, look inside. Something sinister, something terrible is growing on the inside. And it's going to produce an awesome harvest. You've just seen the first bit of the crop. The rest is coming. And God even comes to Cain who murdered his brother, God comes as protector. He puts a mark on Cain so that other people won't kill him. Expressions of grace? God comes to us as counselor, doesn't he? He asks us questions. Sometimes the questions come from a friend. They come in a small group. They may come in the words to a song that we sing when we gather. They may even come through a message here. God comes asking questions. God comes revealing. He wants you to look inside and see what's in there. And God not only protects those that follow closely after him, God even protects those that are not innocent and continue to live in rebellion from him. So we see the same themes in Adam and Eve and in Cain and Abel. Rebellion, consequences are announced. There is then an expression of grace that's given and then the consequences are applied. Well, then we come to Noah and the flood. Now, it's kind of things are ratcheted up a fair bit. They're actually ratcheted up exponentially here. By the time we get to Noah, evil and violence are running rampant through the whole world, right? There's evil everywhere. People, every intent of the human heart is evil all the time. You turn that triangle and things just take root and they get worse and worse. And that's what's happening. There's evil everywhere. And what does God do? He announces, right? In, he announces the flood's coming. He announces the consequences. Expressions of grace? Yeah, you bet. The expression of grace is, he says, hey, Noah, a flood's coming. It's going to take everybody out. I want you to build a boat. It's a good thing he didn't ask me to build a boat. But he asked, no, I want you to build a boat, a really big boat. 
for all of your family and for two of every clean animal, or two of every animal and seven of every clean animal. I want them to all go into the boat with you. God provides an expression of grace and it's the ark and the storm of God's judgment, right? Raging on the outside. And God brings salvation to Noah and those inside there. The ark is an expression of grace. God could have destroyed the whole earth, but he didn't. God says, uh, I send an ark. And interestingly, Peter uses the ark as a picture of what Jesus has done. Those that are in him are protected from the raging storm of God's judgment. There's an expression of grace. But there's another expression of grace. It comes in the form of a picture. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll do a little Bible trivia. What sign does Noah get from God that God isn't going to flood the earth again? What is it? Rainbow. A rainbow, that's right, rainbow. Now, here's an interesting thing. When the Bible talks about the rainbow in the sky and God's, I'm never going to destroy you, um, it's not the word rainbow, though. It's just the word bow. And in the ancient world, what was a bow? A bow was a weapon of war through which you strung an arrow and shot it at somebody to take them out. And what does God say? I will hang my bow in this. God saying, I'm hanging up my bow of judgment. And the secret as to how God can do that is actually in the rainbow. When you look into the sky at a rainbow, so on a dark and stormy, cloudy day, the storm begins to dissipate, and the bow, right, think weapon of war, the bow appears in the sky. God says, I hang up. But how in the world can God hang up his bow of judgment and justice, there's still wickedness and evil. Yeah, here's the secret. Which direction is the bow aiming? God says, I can hang up my bow of justice because I will take the arrows that you deserve to take. God can hang up the bow of judgment because somehow, someday, he's going to take the arrows that Noah, his family, you and I deserve to take because of our rebellion. An expression of grace. The secret is in the direction the rainbow points. And the ark points us to Jesus that brings forgiveness. Well, we got one last uh, story in those first 11 chapters. And the last story is the Tower of Babel. We call it the Tower of Arrogance. Remember, the people were said to, they were told to go out and fill the earth rather than doing that. Said, no, let's hang out together. We kind of like each other's company and they kind of hang out and they're going to build a tower that reaches to the heavens. We're not quite sure completely of their motivation. Do they want to somehow get connected to God, build a bridge to God on their terms rather than God's? Or are they building a tower to somehow rage an assault against God? Do they want to take him out for the rules and regulations? Who does he think he is telling us what we can do and can't do? Who's he telling us go to the ends of the earth? Who's he? 
And so God, remember in the crazy metaphor, God has to stoop down to even catch a glimpse at a tower that through which they're going to come and take him out. He can barely see the thing, right? Um, he stoops down and Psalm 2 says, he laughs as the king and mighty ones of the earth think that somehow they're going to thwart his plan or somehow assault him. What does God do? Well, he confuses the language, language of, but there's grace in that. God could have eliminated language. He didn't eliminate language. He confused their languages. So now the people that are there speak lots of different languages. Communication is going to be much more difficult, but not impossible. We're examples of that, right? Husbands, wives, you ever have trouble communicating? Uh, parents, kids, right? Grand, uh, we have difficulty. How about at work? Difficulty, and we all speak the same language. That gets ratcheted up when you try to communicate with people that speak different languages, but communication's not impossible. Difficult, but not impossible. So there's grace in that. And God says, now go fill the earth. Notice, his intention was actually for, he didn't change his mind. He said, I want you to take my image to the ends of the earth. They have a better plan. They're going to hang out together. Yeah, but by the time you get to the end of uh, Genesis 11, or if you read back in Genesis 12, where all the nations are listening, yeah, actually God winds up getting exactly what he said was going to happen. And maybe that's an important point for you and for me. God's plan purposes will be completed and enacted 100%. The only question is, will you be part of his enacting those, or will you get broken as you try to oppose his plan and live in resistance to him. Well, where's this all going then? You know, the ultimate destination isn't presented in a crystal clear fashion in Genesis 1 to 11. Again, we've got um, creation, right? Creation's good. It's designed. We need to live in light of that and live those principles out. And then we get Four illustrations, four accounts of rebellion that recount the same themes over and over again. There's sin, the, the announcement of consequences, expressions of grace, and then the consequences are enacted. But in the expressions of grace, there's a destination. But the destination isn't given in Genesis 1 to 11. We just get the expression. We kind of get the sign, but we don't get the destination. We know where the sign's going. Where's the sign going in the expression of grace where God takes animal skins to cover the sin and shame of Adam and Eve? The destination of that sign is that Jesus Christ gives his life to cover our sin and shame. Where's the destination of the expression of grace to Cain? We're told there, and we're reminded in Hebrews, that Abel's voice cries for justice from the ground. But Hebrews 12 says, Jesus' blood cries for a better justice, and his cry will be heard. Abel's blood cries for justice somebody must pay, Jesus' blood cries, I already did pay, so those who are mine are forgiven. 
What's the expression of grace in the flood? Jesus, our ark. In the picture of the rainbow, the next time on a dark and cloudy, stormy day, after the clouds begin to dissipate and you see that, cl- you see that bow in the clouds, remember, the bow was a weapon of war before it was a symbol of grace. But the secret of the rainbow and of God's promise is that Jesus bore the arrows of God's justice so we will never have to bear them. And what's the expression of grace? In the Tower of Babel, communication's difficult, not impossible. And on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, as a sign of the gospel taking root and beginning to go to the ends of the earth, Jesus says, peace, harmony, and partnership, God's original intention, will one day come to complete fruition And we, his followers, have been sent as missionaries to that end, knowing where it's headed. This morning I uh, got up and I read some sections of Revelation, and I thought, you know what? As long as we're talking about the, remember the destination, this would be a pretty good passage to end the morning message with. Here's the destination from Revelation chapter 5. In my mind, Revelation 5 takes place right after the ascension. Jesus having been crucified and paying for our sin, he took the arrows, he is the ark, his blood is now crying, and he walks up into heaven, and heaven is crying, and John's crying. Who now can unfurl God's purposes? Who can bring vindication for God's people? Who will make things right? Who will bring the victory? Listen as I read. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the, on the throne a scroll written on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. I wept, this is John, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or even look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll in each of its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, Genesis 3, Genesis 6 through 9, Genesis 11. Standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, the Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took from the right hand of him who sat on the throne the scroll. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And all of heaven sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God. 
Persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation, you've made them to be one kingdom, a kingdom of priests to serve our God. And they will reign with the Lamb forever and ever. The beginning of the book gives us themes that point to the end of the book. We live in between. What do you say? Get in step with where this whole thing's headed, or you'll get broken in the process. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the themes that begin in Genesis. Some crazy stories that we really can't wrap our head around, but, but the big picture and the big, pic- and the big themes are clear. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to uh, live into those themes. Help us to live into the themes of acknowledging our sin, our deserving of condemnation, and help us to live out the expressions of grace that point to the ultimate grace given because of what Jesus has done, and help us to live the values of that kingdom that will exist and he will reign forever and ever. We pray in his name. Amen.